Welcome to the Contracting Officer Podcast. It's not just for contracting officers. If you work anywhere in the government acquisition world, this podcast is for you. Whether you work for government or industry, we're here to help you understand a little more about how the other side thinks. Our mission, to make government contracts better one contract at a time. Today, Kevin and I are talking about scale in government contracts. Is bigger better? We cover some of the benefits and the challenges that come with bigger contracts. And speaking of challenges, you'll also notice a strange thumping or or knocking kind of sound throughout this one as I battled my microphone stand for supremacy. Good news is that microphone stand is gone and I have a new one on the way. All right, let's get this episode going. Today, we're talking about why bigger is better. Or maybe it's not. I was listening to a, a Masters of Scale podcast. It's uh, hosted by Reed Hoffman, one of the founders of LinkedIn. In this particular episode, it was interesting to hear about how companies like LinkedIn, Facebook, Airbnb, and, and other companies that had scaled quickly. And, and spoiler alert, these companies used a combination of wickedly smart people, lots of outside funding, and timing. Their timing was really good. But as far as how they scaled well, that, that's off topic. One of the big takeaways was that they focused on what worked at the micro level, such as talking to customers one at a time, you know, even these companies that were scaling quickly, they focused on the micro level, then doing the things that worked manually until they were painful, then scaling. So then just scale. We, we heard of them because they scaled overnight, but realistically, they were doing things manually until it was painful. And that's something I get as an entrepreneur. However, I did not get that when I was a contracting officer. Uh, As a contracting officer, I tended to scale my contracts quickly. I I scaled my task orders. I increased the number of Akron's, the CLINs, and all that stuff under the idea that if it worked at the small level, it must work at the scale. Of course. So sometimes I I got it right and got a gold star. (laughs) Sometimes I got it really wrong and ended up doing it twice. Before we talk any more about all the things that you did wrong, let's stop and say thanks. (laughs) I want to say thanks this week to Julia Walker. Uh, Julia is the business development manager at Ceiling Technologies. They're a cybersecurity and research firm in Columbia, Maryland. I want to thank Julia for liking our podcast episodes on LinkedIn and also for jumping into the Contracting Officer Podcast group on LinkedIn. The best way for people to find our podcast is for people like Julia to like it and share it, especially on LinkedIn. Thanks, Julia. All right, let's get back to the difference between bigger, more, and scaling. What are we talking about? What do we mean by making things bigger? Give me some examples, Kevin. I'll give you three examples of scale. And like most things, these are all good things when they're used well. Number one is the IDIQ contracts. These are very effective, but they can hit a maximum scale when where they're just so big that they start to be more work than they are effective. A second example would be a broad statement of work or a performance work statement where, where everything is included under the statement of work. These are great until they cover everything that could need to be done, but not very specifically or, or vaguely. Um, I had a large contract once where it was so broad that we ended up getting 300 companies that wanted to bid on it, where we thought there was probably only about 10 companies. But it's because they didn't clearly understand the nuance of, of every one of the tasks under it. So we covered everything, but we didn't cover it with enough specificity, and it still was like a 100-page RFP. Right, it would have been a thousand-page RFP if you had gotten into the specifics that you needed to, which means that you would have had to give that many more pages for proposals to respond to all those specifics. <laughs> which means it would have taken two years to evaluate it all, and by the time you awarded it, it wouldn't have mattered. <laughs> yeah, that, oh, that's 
So too close to reality. Sorry there. A third example can be something like an umbrella contract where one integrator manages everything. So the government decides that they don't want to do a whole bunch of little contracts and then make everything work together themselves. They hire one contractor to do the whole job, knowing that that contractor is going to have to subcontract out large pieces of the work and then make it all work together. Right. And the, and the larger that contract, that's a great strategy, but the larger that contract gets, the more complicated it is for both sides. And so then you end up with a, the umbrella is the size of an entire agency. <laughs> that's a big contract with a lot of moving parts under one umbrella. I feel like those umbrellas have been pretty cyclical in my career where we had a really big contract that the government tried to integrate and the government wasn't very good at being the integrator. So all those little parts never really worked together. So next time we're going to hire a big prime contractor to be the integrator. And then we find out that we lose control and insight and we aren't real happy with how they do it, even though they're probably better at integrating. So that didn't work. Back to the government being the integrator. <laughs> yeah, there's a little bit of learn by doing everywhere. It's important to talk about whether scale is better, whether bigger is better. And particularly by what standard? What's the definition of better? Yeah. Is it better for the government? Well, maybe. I mean, the theory is you have fewer contracts. You have, you have somebody else integrating all the work, right? It's more streamlined. It's more the term consolidated. You, you have one big button to hit to get a series of services or products. So it sounds like it might be better, but maybe not. For industry, bigger could be better too. IDIQs, the indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity contracts, can be a great place to grow your business. Because once you have that contract, you can drive all kinds of other work to that contract. The government has an easier place to award to you or to anybody because they don't have to do a huge competition for it. If it's within scope, they can award it to you under your contract. It also could give small companies a chance to bid on a contract with a huge, broad scope even if they can only do some of the work now. Some of these giant IDIQs require the prime contractor to be able to do all the work themselves or to have a team that could do all the work themselves. I've seen other RFPs where you can bid on just a portion of the work. For small companies, that's a great opportunity to get their foot in the door, learn how to do other parts of the work or hire or or better, hire subs to do parts of the work they can't do and learn from them. And over time, expand the breadth of work that your company can do. The downside of industry fo focusing on these larger contracts is sometimes you can swing above your weight class and you create a resource hog that, that takes a lot of care and feeding to keep this large contract afloat and it ends up being a distraction and it may not generate very much revenue relative to the amount of effort it takes to just Keep it going. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. Why does scale matter for, for your agency? Well, it, it's important if, if you're going to have the experience and manpower, make sure you have the experience and manpower to manage a big, complex contract or, or multiple ones. It takes a lot of expertise. I mean, this stuff's not easy. It's not a one-person job. Exactly. You also have to think about how much time do you have before you need to get this thing awarded? If you go big and want to award a big contract, it takes a long time to get the contract award. We're talking years in some cases. It becomes so big that every contractor in industry wants to play because they're afraid they'll be completely left out of work with your agency for five years if they don't win, if they're not a part of it. 
So you have to think up front, that is manpower intensive. All those people are going to get pulled off of whatever other jobs they're doing to work on this acquisition for how long before you get to award? Let's look at this from your company's perspective. Is that slot on the IDIQ or getting a blanket purchase agreement for a huge contract the only way to support your target customers? If it is, it's important to figure out how to be a part of it. If it isn't, maybe you don't want to be a part of this giant thing. Or maybe it used to be how they awarded all of their work. I was, a, I was talking to a company last week, and they have two of these large IDIQ contracts worth $100 million each, but they've only gotten a million dollars in revenue from each of them. So when the government agency put those in place, they expected to spend $100 million. Not so much. Now they shifted so to something it, else, and this, yeah, your yeah. company went to all this work to win it, and it's sort of an empty vessel. Right. I'm going to put this in the acquisition time zones and execution time zones. What we're talking about with this scaling stuff and is bigger, better is in the requirement zone and the market research zone when you're on the acquisition time zone side of the equation. Before contract award, when you're looking at the requirements and you're building the RFP and pulsing industry for information in the market research zone, that's when you are making decisions about how big should it be. Should I have five different contracts for this? Should I have one big contract? Should I have a hundred big contracts and let everybody compete for all the requirements later? These are the decisions you're making in the acquisition time zones early on, requirement zone, market research zone. After contract award on the execution time zone side, when we're talking about the administration burden and are you ready to keep up with this? Do you have enough people? This is really the performance zone we're talking about. It can also really come back to haunt you at the very end, the last of the execution time zones, the wrap-up zone, when you're going to contract closeout. Bigger contract means more closeout work, more complications, especially if it's a long-term contract and all those records are seven years old. By the time you get to close it out and you're trying to figure out what happened, it can be tough. So with scale comes the ensuing administration nightmares. And if you weren't closing out those task orders or task order or delivery orders individually over the five-year period, you end up with 400 task orders on top of that giant contract. And yet the wrap-up zone ends up being a pretty miserable experience for somebody. There's another lesson. Close out as you go. Doesn't always happen. Easier said than done. Rabbit hole for another podcast. Let's get back to why the government should care about scale. I kind of joked at the beginning that bigger is always better, and and I think we've already covered a little bit why bigger isn't always better. If we're going to go with a bigger contract, what's the reward? Well, we're back to that efficiency of awarding orders idea. When you have a contract in place, you can more effectively and, and quickly, honestly, put task orders, delivery orders in, in, in place, sometimes even unilaterally, right? Yeah, but there's nothing efficient about getting that huge contract awarded in the first place. In, in my experience, it takes a lot longer. So post-award, when you're, when you're awarding task orders, competing task orders, you can be more efficient. But the upfront part to get those massive IDIQs awarded can really bum you out. And, and sometimes the juice isn't worth the squeeze because if you have a lot of companies that hold those multiple award contracts, you have to compete every one of them, right? And that could take a while. So it took you a long time to get the thing in place, and it may take you longer than you think. But that's the theory, is that it's more efficient. It's also more efficient from the perspective of you would have a go-to resource. 
uh, if you have three companies that are that have the multiple award contract for a service or a, a product, you know where to get that product. You have a go-to. That's the reason. That's the reward for doing these these scaled contracts. You don't have to start right back with the requirement zone and the market research zone and figure out who can do this because you already have them on hand. Correct. You don't have to go on the FBO and start all over again. <laughs> you, you have somebody you can go and buy this from. Another reward to a, a scaled contract could be the ability to award quickly at the end of the fiscal year because we, we have money to put on contract. We have a contract in place. We can effectively execute <laughs> in a short amount of time. So it's one of the reasons as a contracting officer that I, I like having an IDIQ contract at the end of the fiscal year. Those are some of the rewards. But what's the risk of having this large contract? Is bigger really better? One of the risks you run into is too many offers. Because like you mentioned, it's so big, everybody wants to play. It could be the only chance they have to get in for the next five years. You're going to get a lot of offers. Be ready for that. As a result of having too many offers, you may feel compelled to have too many awards <laughs> because now you have, oh, I got 500 people that offered. I can't award six out of 500 and not get 200 protests. So you end up with this mindset of people pushing you to, to actually award more contracts. It's very difficult to write the evaluation criteria for a giant contract, giant scope in a way that you can actually differentiate between the offers and get down to just those few awards. That's why on the giant contracts where so much is at stake that everybody wants to bid, there's often a lot of protests when you get to source selection time because the stakes are high. They don't want to lose out. So we're going to throw some more money at this and protest it. Maybe we'll get another shot. Because they're trying to get a seat at the table because they know that this is their one chance to be at the table for the next five years, yeah. potentially. So in the end, there's a lot of pressure on the government to award to a lot of people to avoid the protests. When a tighter source selection with more discriminators in the evaluation criteria would make it easier. It's just, it's really hard to do that when the contract gets that big. Government folks, remember that offers may be turned off by this scale. You'll get more offers, but are the best ones potentially going to opt out and realize that I don't want to be one of 50 people getting a multiple award contract and then having to basically be in a knife fight to win the task orders or delivery orders after that. I'll add more to that later. First, I want to get to FAR time. We're way into this and haven't even quoted any FAR sites yet, Kevin. <laughs> we can't have that. You have to remember, the larger the anticipated contract, the higher the review level, the higher up, the more important the person is that has to sign off on it someone with more authority. Sometimes it's worth it. Sometimes it's just a requirement. And it's important to remember that that also adds to the timeline and the complexity of getting your acquisition off the ground and actually getting some work done. To illustrate how these approval levels stack up, we actually dip down a level. This is not exactly FAR time. It's more DFARS time. There's example in every agency's regulations. We chose DFARS here. 237.170-2 approval requirements says in subparagraph A, acquisition of services through a contract or task order that is not performance-based for acquisitions at or below $93 million, obtain the approval of the official designated by the department or agency. For acquisitions exceeding $93 million, obtain the approval of the senior procurement executive. So $93 million isn't a whole lot in government terms if you're talking about a agency-wide contract or a very large contract. And that requires you to go to the senior procurement executive. And what's that mean? Well, that's somebody at the top of the chain. They have a lot of staff. 
that you have to <laughs> swim your way through to get to them. Um, it's a lot of briefings. It's a lot of mother may eyes. And I would suspect that you may see a lot of $92 million IDIQs <laughs> because they want to avoid that step. For that kind of work, yeah. And don't get stuck on $93 million or who has to approve what. This is different in every agency, different for different kinds of requirements. This one is strictly services that are not performance-based. The point is that bigger contract means more work to get it off the ground. I picked this one because it was a, a random number. Not $100 million, $93 million. <laughs> We love round numbers. You have to wonder where we got to 93 on that one. <laughs> it's always a mystery if you're on the industry side. Government folks may assume all things are better at scale. I mean, I did as a contracting officer. You did say that you tried a couple times and had to repeat the process because you didn't quite get the scale right for the acquisition at hand. And making a contract bigger is, is not always going to be better, right? What's the reward for industry of having these larger contracts? It could cut down on the number of competitors. If it's done properly, only a few companies can compete for a contract at that scale. So you might not have as many people to compete against. What that creates, and this is the perverse twist in it all, is it creates a fight amongst the prime contractors for teaming partners. Which means if you don't sign up the best teaming partners early in the process, like way before the RFP comes out, you may have already lost the competition. Because when it comes to proposal time, your competitor has all of the best teammates that the government wants. And this happened way before you even put pen to paper or finger to keyboard to write your proposal. Finger to keyboard. I just gave a reward and a, a negative there. Well, they're two sides of the same coin. It can also be faster to award orders to you. It's, we're back to the, you're the go-to. As from the industry perspective, if you have that IDIQ and that's how the agency buys, you're the go-to, especially at the end of the fiscal year. So those are the same benefits that, that the government had. It can be a very efficient way to do business. The downside that comes with it is that's after initial award. Like we talked about in FAR time or DFAR's time, the review process to get to these large awards takes a lot longer. The proposals take longer to write. The evaluations take longer and there's protests. There's a whole lot of stuff that has to happen to get to the point that now it's faster to award orders to you. Yeah, well said. We've kind of been going back and forth between the upsides and the downsides. Tell me more downsides. Fewer competitors on these IDIQs means you have more focused competition. In theory, that sounds nice because you've, you, you know who your competitors are. Thing is, all of those companies are, are well-qualified. They're all talking to the agency. It, just because you have fewer competitors doesn't mean the competition isn't going to be fierce because you all know what you're trying to win. Right. Sometimes you think, wow, the government got 30 proposals for this, but only three companies really know what they're doing. So there's only three real competitors. If we're talking a big contract, then people are very focused and invest a lot of money in getting the proposal right. So more focused is even maybe soft selling how fierce the competition can be. And then after award, when let's say that only three of those 30 companies actually win the IDIQ, every task order or every delivery order should be a very highly competitive, highly focused competition. Because the, you three know, you know who's competing. You know who you're competing with. I mean, it's, all, it's a different animal. It's not a matter of, of uh, your innovative ideas aren't going to be as effective because they're probably looking at the same stuff you are. Some large IDIQs have a requirement that every company has to submit a proposal for every request for task order proposals that is released. 
or task order proposal requests, Topper, Topper. Yeah, Topers. If that's the case, you have to think about whether your company can keep up with that proposal flow. That could be a lot of work, and you may have to scramble to find new partners to bid on requirements that you're really not good at and submit a proposal that has very little chance to win. Also remember that the initial contract award, a big contract means a big proposal is going to be required in order to win, which means a big budget is going to be required for that big proposal, and you're going to exceed that budget because if it's a big contract competition, there are going to be acquisition delays. It's inevitable. There's always delays. So you end up spending more than you think, even when it's already a huge number. Also think about whether or not you can protest or challenge the decisions after the award is made. You can protest the initial award, the one you just talked about, Paul. You're investing all the effort in getting this initial award. But after award, when you have task orders and delivery orders, most of them aren't going to be protestable. If they're under FAR 16.5, which an IDIQ contract would be, or or if they're large, then they're going to be those task orders and delivery orders would be protestable. But a lot of them aren't going going to be. So losing the task order and not being able to protest it, that's a downside. You don't have a challenge. You don't have the ability to challenge it. I'm going to circle back to something you mentioned earlier. Some contractors may be turned off by scale and opt out of the competition. If that if that's you, you should tell the government that, hey, I'm out. This is too big. I can't compete on this. They may change their minds just based on that knowledge if you're who they really want. I think giant contracts often come down to a price shootout at proposal time. Because there's not a lot of differentiation, because the scope's really wide, it's hard to give a specific price. And they become these submit me labor category rates and you're going to submit proposals later for all the task orders. So we just want to see your rates, but we're going to evaluate you based on your rates. So everybody wants low rates so they can win. They'll figure out how to make money later. What that means is companies that make expensive specialty products or provide specialty services, those boutique companies, they may not play in these type of competitions. It's like a company that makes custom suits. They're not going to want to be on on a large homogenized IDIQ because they don't sell off-the-rack suits. If you want an off-the-rack suit, go down to Sears and and knock yourself out if Sears is still in business. (laughs) But but we make custom suits, right? We we make a suit that that is, is... fit to you perfectly. So you feel like a million dollars so that you actually are going to be more successful is the idea behind it. Right. But that idea of a customized company who makes something like a customized suit, that fits like a glove that's designed for you, they're not going to win a price shootout. So they're probably going to opt out as a government contracting officer. I never even thought of that. As someone that worked for a specialty kind of expensive boutique company, we had to stay away from competitions that were going to be a price shootout because we knew that we wouldn't win. If we hadn't already convinced the government that technical excellence and the end solution was the most important award criteria, we had to stay out of it. We weren't going to win based on price. All right, Kevin, let's wrap this one up with the thought of bigger isn't always better. Sometimes it's just more work, which is the opposite of what the intention usually is by going bigger. Yeah, that, that, the theory is that scale is better. Well, and sometimes scale is just more work if, you don't, if, if it doesn't apply perfectly. On the government side, the government needs to get stuff done, right? So scale is a go-to. I mean, there, there are large contracts all over the, the GovCon environment. 
But consider your options. I mean, how do we know if bigger is really going to be better? Are we just assuming that it's going to be better? I assume that, uh, that a couple of times, I, actually two times in particular, I awarded the, a large multiple award contract. And in the end, there was really only one company that, in one example, won all the delivery orders. Looking back, I probably could have done a little bit more work at research and figured out maybe I just give this, I just compete this whole thing and they're going to win it anyway <laughs> because they were so much better than everybody else. Industry folks definitely need to be looking at the size of the contract. It's more than just, is this in your weight class or out of your weight class? It can be about opportunity cost. Winning one of these large IDIQs or just a large contract overall can be a lot of administrative work just to maintain it. Some contracts require labor rate updates, wage adjustments. There's more reporting, small business reporting, things like that. You have to be careful, not just in the proposal, making sure that you you don't underestimate, make sure you get all those costs in your proposal or recognize that all those are coming along. But you have to think about the opportunity cost. If all your people are focused on doing this, what aren't you going to be able to bid on in the rest of the government world. And before we scale this episode even more, let's wrap it up. All right, then. I'll talk to you later, Kevin. <laughs> See you, Paul. Okay, that's it for today. If you enjoyed this podcast, we invite you to check out the Skyway community at skywaymember.com. The Skyway community is the essential resource for anyone at any stage of starting, growing, and running a business with government contracts. We speak GovCon. Whether you're brand new to GovCon, just got your first contract, or you're already a successful government contractor, being a Skyway community member gives you the edge. With our extensive tools and training, exclusive member discounts on consulting support, and a support of an active community of peers to help you along the way, the Skyway community is the perfect place for anyone who's serious about winning new business. To learn more, call 877-884-5280 or check us out at skywaymember.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.